You're saying, oh, I can play and watch? Yeah, you can play and watch. Uh, yeah. Some of you shouldn't be on the slide. Um, just saying. Just saying. You might, you might have a hard time getting off the slide. Not because you would be stuck, it's just kind of fun. Speaking from experience. I've only done the slide once. Um, <laughs> you were right there in line. We're uh, continuing on in our series through the book of Daniel, and um, Daniel was uncompromised. Like he didn't, he didn't take any moment where he said, "You know what? I'll just relax a little bit." He was uncompromised in his life, and it's it's quite amazing that. Daniel was, if you remember last week, in, in uncompromised faith, and today we're going to look at part two of that. Uh, but Daniel was 15 years old. 15 years old. And already had made up in his mind that this is who I am, and this is where I stand. And I'm like, wow. At 15, I was still trying to figure out how far I could drive with no driver's license. You know, like I was not trying to figure things out. I was not trying to say this is where I, uh, where I stand. This is not things that were going through my brain at 15. And Daniel is just saying, you know what? I, I'm standing for God. I'm standing for him. So last week we looked at, at what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do he was trying to undo the work of God. God had, was doing some great things in, in their lives, and uh, they were taken captivity at the age of 15, uh, Daniel and, and others with him. And they were being groomed for service in a culture that was opposed to his faith in God. And today we're going to continue to look at those tactics uh, that Nebuchadnezzar was using. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did with, with Daniel and those that he brought with him is, is he isolated them. He separated them. He said, you know what? Uh, we're going to pull you out of your culture and even out of your worship. We're going to take those things captive. And it's okay. You, you will learn to come to like it. Or that's what they were thinking anyway. He takes them away from Jerusalem. And before anything else can be formed in these young men's lives, their source of nourishment, their convictions, he pulls them away from that and into captivity. It's interesting, though, at age 15, they were held captive for 70 years. I wonder how we would be being held captive for 70 years. Like, I know I might lose a few marbles. But oh, stay strong for that long. To remember to stand firm for 70 years. Wow. Pretty incredible. Second thing that Nebuchadnezzar did with these young men is he, he wanted to indoctrinate them in the ways and the customs of the Chaldeans. 
He makes the values and ideas of Babylon seem more realistic than even their Jewish background. He said, you know what, this is really what life is about. This is where you should be living now. He makes all that they were raised in, all their, what they have known even in those early years, seem irrelevant. Seem like, you know what, that was, you know, what you learned for the first 15 years of life, and those of you who are 15 or under, you're thinking, I've, well, I've learned a lot of things, but how strong are those convictions that you've learned in those first 15 years? And now he's making all of those just seem irrelevant, just seem like, you know what, they were just a good thought. They were not really that important. The third thing that Nebuchadnezzar does, and that's where we are today, is that he fills their lives with the pleasures of this new kingdom. He fills their lives with pleasures of this new kingdom. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. It's interesting. At age 15, they're eating from the king's table. That's not even their kingdom, right? That's not where they're from. But they're being indoctrinated. They're being wooed into that. Can I encourage you, at whatever age you are today, to plan now how you will respond to future circumstances that are compromising. Plan now. You see, sometimes we plan to fail, or we fail to plan, therefore we plan to fail. If we don't make it up in our minds that, you know what, today, should that happen, I am not doing that. Like, I'm not going down that road. I've made up in my mind, no, that's not, that's not where I'm to be. We, we have to do that, don't we, as each one of us? Say, so you know what, I, I'm not making that mistake. I'm not going there. And when I'm faced with that, the answer is no. They, were being, they weren't being treated like slaves. They were being held captive, yes. But they weren't being treated like slaves. They were being groomed like princes. They ate the king's food. They drank the king's wine. They learned from the best educators that could be had in the whole land. You see, nothing is as effective at turning our hearts away from God as a plate full of this world's goodness. If I tell you that you can have everything, and I can tie you up in everything of this world, then you soon say, well, the church is there, but I don't really have to be there because I can still have this world's offerings. I can still have these things. Hear me. Distraction is far more effective than persecution. Distraction is far more effective than persecution. Do you ever get distracted in your faith? In your, in your faith walk with God? Do you ever get distracted? 
well, that's an easy one, right? Because we all do. But if the enemy of our soul can keep us distracted long enough and keep us tied up in that, what will we miss out on? Hmm. Distracted. You know, you, some of us have short attention spans, and if something runs across, we would be like looking for squirrels. Because distraction is far more effective than persecution. Why? Because persecuted people are brought to that place of constantly either having to renounce their faith or to defend it in the face of consequences. So if you're persecuted, you have to either say, no, I'm giving up that, or no, I'm standing on this. But if you're distracted, you don't ever have to come to that place. But those who are persecuted are choosing their side. Because that's what persecution does. Distracted people are never forced to consciously choose anything. If you're distracted, you would never really have to choose anything. You can just keep being distracted. The enemy of your soul and my soul would just love to keep us distracted. He'd love to keep us distracted with everything other than the word of God. He would love us to think or have our brains everywhere else. Oh, it would be so much nicer when. Oh, I can't wait until. Remember that. And we just get distracted. We even get distracted looking at somebody else's life and say, oh, I'm glad, God, that I'm not like them, but meanwhile, not working on ourselves. Life for most of us in North America is pretty comfortably, isn't it? I mean, in comparison to the rest of the world, you're saying, Pastor, I, I, I've got bills and I've got, you know, lots of stuff. Yeah, comparison to the rest of the world. There was a, a comparison thing of how we live comfortably. And we're 80, I think it was 80% of the world's population lives on a dollar or two dollars a day or less. So I think everybody in the room is at least making more than $800 a year. And we get pretty comfortable. And, you know, comfort, when you're not really forced to choose, becomes a danger. Because we can just live without having to defend anything, without having to stand up for our faith, without having to say, you know what, this should not be this way. It's one of the most effective things that the spirit of our of this age is doing is to make our Christian convictions either appear unnecessary or meaningless and restricted. You ever tell somebody you're a believer in Christ and they look at you and it's like, oh, you've got a lot of rules, <laughs> right? That's a lot of rules and regulations. And I said, no, 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 no. I have a faith in Christ. I don't have religion. Religion says I have to do this to perform. I have a relationship. A relationship says I desire to do this. 
See, there's a huge difference between one and the other. And Christ would want us and have our life to not just appear unnecessary and restrictive. It would, should be flowing out of love, out of, you know, I want to serve Christ. I want to read the word, the Bible. Why? Because I want to hear what he has to say for me. So I want to encourage you, when you defend your faith, let's be clear. In Revelation chapter 3, and verses 14 to 20, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you are neither cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that, so that you may see. Those whom I love are reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the doors, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The enemy's plan is to turn all of my attention, all of your attention, inward and downward. By fixing the bulk of our attention on what satisfies me, what, hey, what makes me happy. You ever say that? You know... Uh, I've thought about others so long, it's time for me. Oh. Oh, okay. If you've said that phrase, if you've heard that phrase, it's like, uh-oh. Because if it's just about us, if it's just, I want to be happy now, it's my time then we're just looking to satisfy the immediate desires. That doesn't mean that God wants you, you know, angry and bitter and sullen and bankrupt and broke. But that just means that, you know what, it shouldn't just be about the immediate because as long as we just are looking at the immediate, guess what happens tomorrow? The immediate's changed, but it's just now moved with you. And every day like that, it just begins to focus on ourselves. And God would want us to not just to think about the things that consume all of us and, and every part of us. You see, Daniel and his friends had to learn how to stand firm because they were constantly being bombarded with things that would take their eyes off what God had wanted for them. The, the enemy of their of their life was putting things before them and saying, you know what, here's what you can have. 
wasn't bad things. I mean, it was food. But you're saying, you know, you can have this kingdom as opposed to the kingdom you're from. You can have this kingdom of captivity or you can have the kingdom for of the, of the eternal God, the one true king. It wasn't sin what they were being offered. It was just a change of kingdom. And it was a call to bring them away from their mission and their calling. The enemy of our soul wants to make our calling in Christ blurry and distant. Did you know God has a call for your life? God has a plan for you. God has a, call, a plan and a call for each and every believer. And if you're not in Christ, when you come to Christ, he has a plan for your life. And he, in fact, he has a plan for your life even before you come to him. God has a plan and a purpose for you. And that plan and the purpose for your life is not met in the things of this earth. It's not here. It's not a, of this kingdom. But he's got a plan and a purpose for you that goes beyond just what we so much satisfy our everyday life with. And his plan is to make that just seem blurry. You see, if you're tortured for your faith, if you were persecuted for your faith, you know when you've given in and you know when you stood strong. But because it's not about persecution in our world today, because see, persecution would sharpen your edge. We're just being lulled to sleep. We're just being lulled to sleep by the attractions of this world. And when you're lulled to sleep, you lose by default. Without even thinking about it, without even knowing that the battle has been lost, you're just lulled to sleep. You just begin to put your head down and close your eyes. Don't fall asleep on me this morning. That's why Scripture says, when people are seduced by the pleasures of this world around them, they grow spiritually blind and they don't even recognize it. So Nebuchadnezzar spreads the table before them oh, and he makes it look nice. He puts the, the king's food is on that table. Like it's not the servant's food and it's not the leftovers. Because nobody feeds that to the king. But he puts before them a king's meal. And you're a teenager. That's better than any buffet. And they're at the king's table. And they say, come on. Come on, let's just eat. Let's just consume. He wants them to make them forget everything that they had. He wants them to forget that they were even happy back in Judah. You know, because in Judah, they may have struggled for food. We don't know. We aren't told, but they definitely weren't eating at the king's table as teenagers. But now at the king's table as teenagers, he wants them to think of that Judah was 
yeah, it was okay, but it's not as good as here. And he spreads the, bab- the table with hopes to make them forget that they have a ministry and a calling to serve the Lord. You see, because their calling, their calling of God didn't end because their location ended and changed. God had still called them to serve him. Didn't matter that they were now in captivity. God didn't take his calling and went to, oh, you were in Judah, that was your calling, and now you're in Babylon, well, let me give you a different set of... No, no, no. He still had a call for their life. He still had a plan for their life, and it didn't change because of location. It didn't change because they were free and now captive. Your calling and your purpose are not easily snuffed out in the lap of abundance. Never forget that. Your calling and your purpose, and each one of you has a calling and a purpose, doesn't change just because something else changes. Not like, oh, well, you hit a different age. Now, let me give you something different. God's plan and calling for you doesn't change. The fourth thing that Nebuchadnezzar did is he decided to change their names. In Daniel chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, And the angel of the Lord... Oh, my goodness. When I copied and pasted text that went somewhere else, um, which is good that we caught that. You would have heard Revelation again. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them, the, gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. Azariah he called Abednego. Sometimes when we hear these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't even understand the significance of a name change. Let me show you what their names meant. Daniel meant the Lord is judge. It was changed to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Why were they in captivity? Why were they being held captive by Nebuchadnezzar? Because God was judging them because they're how they were living. So Daniel's name was a constant reminder that God was judging them. And now they changed his name to Belshazzar. Let's go to the next one. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which means great is Aku. That's weird, isn't it? Aku is a Babylonian god. He's changing everything about them. He's he's trying to give with them a whole new identity just by changing their name. Michel means who is like the Lord. Changed to Meshach says who is like a coup. Wow. Changing their identity had some significance, didn't it? You see, names in that day and era means so much more than our names do today. Sometimes we just look at what's popular. You know, you, you, I don't know, it's been a while since we've had kids. Pre-Google, but I'm sure it's a Google search nowadays, you know, top 10 baby names. 
and then you go through your friends list and who has that name, you know, then you say, okay, well, we can't, we can't have five of them, so let's give a different name. But I don't know when names stopped really having significant meaning. But names do have meaning. Meshach. Oh, sorry. We got that one. Uh, Azariah. The Lord is my helper. Changed to Abednego, a servant of Nebu. These sounds like names from Star Wars, but they're not. Nebu means son of, of Baal. Nebu was a son of Baal. Never forget this, that this world is ruled by a real devil. And he's energetic and he's creative to both undo and remake you into his image. These children of God had amazing names with real meaning. And now they were given an identity that absolutely distorted everything that they would have believed in. The world wants to change our identity. You see, your future is up for grabs. Depending on your awareness of this battle, there's a battle going on. And your future and my future is up for grabs. Depending on our awareness of the battle and our resistance. to the unquestioned values and ways of thinking in this world around us. Again, let us just go back to Daniel's name. Daniel, God is judge. The Lord is judge. If you want a copy of these slides, just email me. I'll send you the whole file. Now here's Daniel trying to live for God. Again, a teenager in a foreign land. And he's trying to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And what keeps him strong when everybody else around him seemed to have caved to his Chaldean pressure? Even after they had changed his name, he remembered and he held on to what he was called by his parents. He said, you can call me whatever you want to call me, but that doesn't change my identity. You may call me what you want to call me, but that does not change who I am. I'm a, that's how we should cry, right? This world can say what it wants to about us, but I'm a child of God. My identity is not changed just because somebody may say something. There's the irony to his name, of course, as I told you. The, Babylon, the Jews were in this mess in Babylon. Why? Because they were being judged by God. Remember, the Babylonians didn't just come in to take over them by chance. They just allowed it to happen over time. It was not like a war where one day the war started and it just went crazy for a while and then the war ended and now you're being held captive. It slowly happened as they got eroded, as they just let their guards down as they just let the Babylonians come in with their influence. They didn't think that God would ever judge them. 
but God is true to his word and his character. I wonder, I wonder how many times Daniel, being human like us, was tempted to turn allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder if he, how many times he was tempted. I wonder how many times he thought of his name and remembered God as judge. I wonder how many times he remembered that not only the Jews were being judged for a season, but God is now requiring him to remain true to God and not waver in his faith. You see, we all have a fallen nature. And that's what we are called to put to death. And pick up our cross daily. Because our fallen nature being what it is, nothing makes us remember our spiritual status as pilgrims and strangers in this world like the removal of earthly comforts. You start taking away some of our comforts that we have, we'll start remembering things. I hope. But now here they are in Babylon as captives, and they're not having anything taken from them. In fact, they're being allowed to eat from a king's table that's not the king they love and serve. Can you imagine? It's like how hard it is to stand up to that. And there's where we find our passage where we were last week in Daniel 1 and verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. There's nothing in this passage of scripture in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 that would tell us that that food was something they should not eat. I know some commentators will say, well, maybe it was pork. No, it's not. We, you can't read that in there. You can't make words appear that aren't there. Well, maybe it wasn't just Welch's grape juice. Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was wine. No, there's nothing in this passage of Scripture to tell us that anything that David was being offered would have been against his faith, would have been against what God would want him to eat. Nothing in this text would tell us that maybe it was even food offered to idols. Nothing in there stands out as like, you know what, you shouldn't partake of this. Because that's not what this passage is about. The best interpretation of this passage is that Daniel knew what the king was up to. He knew what was taking place. He knew that the king of Babylon, this Nebuchadnezzar was just trying to entice him, was just trying to coax him along, was just trying to say, you know what, it's okay, you give in here, it's okay. You give in here a little, you give in there a little, and sooner or later you give in all the way. He saw the plan behind the food. Daniel's wise probing goes far beyond the shallow, why can't I do this? Where does the Bible say this is a sin? We, we do those things today, don't we? You know, you get asked the question, well, why can't I? Does the Bible say that I should not? 
And then somebody pulls out scripture and it's like, well, no, that's not exactly what it says. Well, we get so playing those games, it's trying to split the hairs. But that's not what it's up to today. Listen. We should be growing up in Christ. We should be maturing. Yes? Uh, trust me, I, I'm not just preaching at you. We should be maturing. Like each one of us. We should be more spiritually mature this week than we were last week. Yeah? That's what we're striving for. I mean, I'm older this week than I was last week. And if you look at the bottom of the shower, I lost more hair this week than I did last week. We should be changing. We should be growing up in our faith with Christ. And if we aren't growing, we aren't just standing still. You know, we think, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to just stay here. No, there is no just staying there. You're either growing are declining. And each one of us should be growing in Christ. The plan of the enemy, Satan's plan, is that he could kill, steal, steal and destroy from every single one of us. He doesn't have a good plan for your life at all. The enemy of your soul wants nothing more than to destroy you. And we should be thinking about that. You know what? The enemy was planning to destroy me, but God has a different plan. What? God has a plan and a calling for each one of you. He has a plan and a calling for each one of you. And God's plan and his purpose for you, oh, it is so good. It's a good plan. But the enemy's plan is to destroy you. There's two plans. It's which one we are going to follow. Which one are we going to give into? David's example spotlights these principles, these footholds in a dirty environment. In an environment where it's not so friendly. The first thing is this. Take the first opportunity that comes to make your stand for Christ known. The worship team can come back. Take the first opportunity that comes to make your stand for Christ. Now, you see, when you're in a new environment, when you meet somebody new, say, you know what? My stand is for Christ. I stand on God's word. Why do you want to do that first? Because it sets up everything else. If we don't stand for Christ first and we tell somebody we... You know, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, 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 you know, I like this and I like that. I like walks on the beach. And, you know, we tell them everything else. And we forget to tell them that we stand for Christ. Then when a compromising situation comes along later, we have to say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. So why didn't you say something? We should not be ashamed of our stand for Christ. So take the very first opportunity when you meet somebody new, when you're in a new situation, to say, you know what, I am a believer, I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, I hold to 
Christian principles and Christian values. It may be difficult to do so because we live in a world that loves to intimidate Christians. But I want to tell you the truth. It only gets harder to make that stand the longer you wait. If you sit silently through two or three situations where you really should have spoken up, then when you finally speak up, you have to justify why you weren't faithful enough to say something in the first place. But if on the very first moment that you meet someone and you say, I'm a follower of Christ, it may get uneasy, it may feel a little bit awkward, but at least they know where you stand. You don't have to go back and say, well, I didn't really stand up for Christ, you see, because I was scared. You don't have to. Plan now how you'll respond in future compromising situations. Plan now how you're going to respond. Say, you know what, if this should happen, if I should get asked, here's my answer. I am a believer. I stand for Christ. I stand on the principles of God's word. Make a plan now how you're going to respond. You see, Daniel purposed in his heart at 15. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He said, I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm choosing today to stand for Christ. I'm not going to allow some compromise to come along. I'm choosing today to stand up. You see, I want to encourage you today. Is dare to have purpose. I dare you to have purpose in your life. When some compromising situation was to come along, I want you to have purpose. Have a, have a purpose. Know how you're going to stand firm when those situations come. And not only that, make it known why you're standing the way you stand. Make it known. Say, I'm not just taking a stand against this because I'm trying to be ignorant or rude. I'm just taking a stand against this because this is what I believe. You know, when we stand for God, we don't have to apologize for His Word. We simply say, I stand on the Bible. This is what the Bible says. We don't have to make apologies for His Word. Yes, I think sometimes we need to apologize for how we've treated somebody because we should do it with love shouldn't we but I want to encourage you to stand up at the first opportunity let somebody know where you stand would you stand with me today Father, as we come to you this day, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, 
all for your strength. God, you know we live in a world that would love us just to follow it. But Lord, I pray that we would stand firm in our devotion and our walk with you. Father, would you help us? Would you guide us and direct us, Lord? Father, would you help us to know that you're not asking us to stand on our own strength and our own ability. In fact, you have given us Holy Spirit to help us. So as we stand for you, we pray, Lord, that as we we do so today in the safety of this space that we would do it every day. We'd stand for you. That we make that resolve in our hearts. Stand firm.
Oh, Father, would you help us this week? Help us, Lord, to stand for you. Help us, Lord, to be committed in our hearts and our lives that we'll not be enticed by the things of this earth. This world has nothing that even comes close to you, Lord. Help us to be dedicated, Father, to you. Would you use us, Lord? Would you make us a blessing? Father, I pray that as we would go about this week, that we would speak of your goodness. That we'd stand in your truth. That we'd let our light shine. Father, would you go with us today? In Jesus' mighty name. And God bless you and strengthen you. See you tonight, church, 7 o'clock. Let that river of life wash it away.